I'm Nancy Cavey, National ERISA and Individual Disability Attorney. Welcome to Winning Isn't Easy. Before we get started, I have to give you a legal disclaimer. This podcast is not legal advice. The Florida Bar Association says I have to say this. So now that I've said it, nothing is going to prevent me from giving you an easy to understand overview of the disability insurance world, the games that carriers play, and what you need to do to get the disability benefits you deserve. So off we go. Do you have a Hartford short-term or long-term disability insurance policy, or are you the beneficiary of an employer-provided Hartford disability plan? If so, today's podcast is for you. And I'm going to be talking about three things today. First, what happens if you file an ERISA claim in federal court? Secondly, how a general workplace standard of occupation in a medical trainer's nurse disability policy doomed her disability insurance claim and what you can learn about the standard of an occupation in your policy. And lastly, I'm going to talk about Hartford's failure to share the opinions of the long-term disability medical file reviewers with a policyholder before the claims denial didn't bother a New York federal court, notwithstanding ERISA regulations. So let's take a break for a moment before we get started. Have you been robbed of your peace of mind from your disability insurance carrier? You owe it to yourself to get a copy of Robbed of Your Peace of Mind, which provides you with everything you need to know about the long-term disability claim process. Request your free copy of the book at kvlaw.com today. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. I'm going to first talk about what happens if you file your ERISA claim in federal court and a concept called ERISA preemption. Most Uh, disability insurance policies are governed by the ERISA uh, disability law. And that is a federal law, not a state law. Most disability insurance policies are issued through employers, not on the basis of uh, buying your own individual disability policy. If you have purchased your own individual disability policy and your claim is uh, denied, the, the difference is really crucial here because uh, you have a contract with yourself and the insurance company to provide you the benefits. It's a contract. And if the individual uh, disability claim is denied, you'll be bringing a claim in state law, not in a federal court. And so your rights under a breach of contract claim are broader than those under an ERISA claim. In a breach of contract case, you have the right to discovery, you have the right to jury trials, you have the right to claim not only what's owed you, uh, but bad faith compensatory damages. Now, on the other hand, if your employer offered you a disability policy or plan, your claim is most likely governed by the ERISA Act. There are two exceptions. The first exception is if you work for a municipality or a state-type agency. In other words, a governmental agency. That's probably a better way to put it. And the other exception is going to be if you work for an employer, such as the Catholic Church, a church plan is not covered under the ERISA statute. So those are two exceptions. Now, what's important about the Employer Retirement Income Act is that your remedies are extremely limited and you can only sue for back benefits. You might be awarded attorney's fees if you win and if the judge agrees that you're entitled to attorney's fees. The bad news is that an ERISA claim is most likely governed by something called the Arbitrary and Capricious Standard of Review. Now, most lawyers haven't heard of this and it's not something that we're taught in law school. But the importance of the arbitrary and capricious standard of review is that it's unlike any burden of proof 
uh, that you're familiar with. For example, in the criminal context, the state has to prove that you're guilty uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. But in an ERISA case, uh, it's a bit of the reverse. You have to prove that the uh, decision uh, that the carrier made denying your claim or the plan made denying your claim is what's called arbitrary and capricious. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But you need to understand that there is limited discovery and no right to a jury trial. So it's important that we understand this distinction. So why is that important? Because if you have a lawyer who doesn't understand that an ERISA claim is a federal claim, more often than not, what they'll do incorrectly is to file the claim in state court. And as a result, the carrier is going to file what's called a motion to remove your case from state court to federal court. And that's a lesson that I think is worth learning. And an example of that is the Felicia Patterson case. Now, Felicia was not represented by an attorney, and she made this mistake on her own. And she sued Hartford Life in a, a Dade County State Court. Now, when she filed this lawsuit, the carrier, Hartford, filed a motion to remove the case to federal court. And she appealed saying, no, 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 this should be in state court. Well, ultimately, this case went all the way up to the 11th Circuit in Atlanta. And the 11th Circuit said that her case had been properly removed under the preemption doctrine. Preemption means that when a federal statute displaces the state law, case has to be filed in federal court. And so preemption is one of those um, co legal concepts that lay people don't understand. And quite frankly, some lawyers don't understand. But ERISA is one of those statutes that preempts state law. And as a result, the claim has to be brought in federal court. Now, this wasn't the only mistake that Ms. Patterson made. The court dismissed her complaint, but allowed her to amend the complaint. But the court said, look, you have to plead exhaustion of remedies. What's exhaustion of remedies? You have to exhaust all your rights to appeal uh, based on well, the appeal rights that you have in your disability policy or plan. And if you don't, the, um, the carrier can say, okay, they didn't exhaust their administrative remedies. Judge, you don't have jurisdiction. And what happens then is if there's 180 days in which to appeal, by the time you get through all this rigmarole with the court, I assure you that more than 180 days has passed. And so while she probably tried to file a pleading that explained that, that she'd exhausted her remedies, most likely she hadn't. And I suspect that the claim ultimately gets dismissed again. So you can see that there's a couple of mistakes that can be made uh, by representing yourself or having a lawyer who's not experienced in handling an ERISA disability case. The first one is failing to complete or exhaust your administrative remedies by filing all the appeals. And the second is filing the lawsuit in the wrong court. You need to understand that the appeals process is crucial to any claim. You've got 180 days in which to file an appeal. And my appeals are anywhere from 25 to 65 pages long because the appeal is the trial of your case. So you don't want to delay in not the properly um, and timely filing an appeal. And if your claim gets denied, of course, you need to file it in the right court or have a lawyer who knows what the right court is to file your lawsuit in. So let's take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to talk about how the standard of occupation in your disability insurance policy can doom your claim. We're going to 
talk about the standard or definition of occupations. And I think the best way to explain this is to tell you the story of uh, a nurse by the name of Ann Kay and how her general workplace standard of occupation in her disability policy doomed her disability claim. Now, you've heard me say many times that one of the most important definitions in the disability insurance policy is the definition of occupation. Why is that? Well, to get your disability benefits, you have to prove that you're unable to perform generally the material and substantial duties of your occupation. And how your policy defines the terms occupation and what your occupation was at the time you became disabled can make all the difference as to whether or not you get the disability benefits you deserve. Now, Kay worked as an operating room nurse for 13 years, and she developed some spinal problems. And as a result, she changed her occupation. And she was a clinical specialist and was paid on a per diem basis. She underwent low back surgery, and she returned to work to her employer, Sinron. But Sinron emerged with another company called the Candela Corporation, and they hired her as a full-time clinical specialist and a senior medical device trainer. Now, unfortunately for her, her surgery was not completely successful and her low back pain returned, and that caused limited range of motion of her spine. Her treating doctor took her out of work and said, look, I'm going to do a set of x-rays. And when they did the x-rays, they noticed that she had lumbar degeneration above her old fusion. And on physical examination, she had mild radiculopathy as well as chronic L5-S1 radiculopathy. That means she had leg pain radiating down her leg. And she also had severe cervical degenerative changes and narrowing in her spine without nerve impingement. So she filed a short-term disability claim and she was paid those benefits. But as she became eligible for long-term disability benefits, Hartford terminated her benefits, noting that she had to prove based on the terms of her policy that she couldn't perform the essential duties of her occupation as generally recognized uh, in the workplace. Now, Hartford, of course, was looking for a reason to deny her claim, and they had a vocational evaluator look at her occupational history and the description of her occupational duties, and they decided that her occupation required her travel to customer locations, move devices, and that required her to sit and stand for hours, push and pull up to 20 pounds, lift and carry up to 20 pounds. So they did this a vocational analysis and then gave it to their paper review doctor to look at her medical records. And of course, what happened? The paper review doctor said she could perform those duties. Now, she appealed saying, wait a second, that's not the correct patient, nor these duties that, that I actually have. They're, they're not what you described. In fact, I have to lift more than your VE um, analyzed my occupation to be. And she, of course, argued that as a result of her diagnosis, she couldn't meet the strength levels of her occupation. So on appeal, Hartford gave the file back to their vocational evaluator. Uh, and the VE performed that, uh, sorry, concluded that her occupation was a combination of a training representative and a general duty nurse. And that the occupation's essential duties involved administering uh, treatment uh, consistent with nursing techniques and preparing medical uh, equipment. Now, the other part of her job required her to conduct individual and group training programs for employees of industrial, commercial, or governmental clients of this uh, company. And that the physical demands were in the range of light to medium with occasional lifting, carrying, pushing, or pulling up to 50 pounds. Hartford then had a second physician 
review uh, her medical records. And of course, that physician disagreed with her treating physician about her restrictions and limitations. And as a result, Hartford upheld the denial and away we go to federal court. So the court starts out this analysis by looking at the definition of disability. And the policy said that a person was disabled if they were prevented from performing one or more of the essential duties of their occupation. And the term your occupation was not subjective and it didn't consider her um, specific duties. Rather, there was an objective definition of occupation, and that was as recognized in the general workplace. In other words, she had to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that her medical diagnosis prevented her from performing an essential duty of her occupation as recognized in the general workplace, not as how she performed it. Now, the problem was that Kay did not explain why her medical condition prevented him from performing her occupation, and she failed to challenge Hartford's vocational conclusions. And that was really the key that led to the court denying her claim, because the judge wanted to see that she had a, had addressed what in fact her occupation was, what her occupational duties were, and that there was uh, hard medical evidence that she was unable to perform those essential duties. So as a result, the court was left with no choice but to accept Hartford's paper reviewing doctor's opinions about her restrictions and limitations and why her diagnosis didn't prevent her from performing at the medium level. As a result, the court upheld the claims denial. Now, lessons to be learned here, obviously, is you need to understand what the definition of disability is in your policy. If the carrier has a vocational evaluation, you need to have your own vocational evaluator take apart the carrier's uh, analysis and uh, come up with an opinion as to, in fact, what your occupation is and what your level of uh, physical functioning is required in that particular occupation. You should have either an IME or a functional capacity evaluation to measure your strength and then have your physician endorse those findings. That's, I think, the best way to rebut a misclassification of a person's occupation and a carrier's conclusion that your restrictions and limitations are something uh, other than what your treating physician has had to say. So in the next session, I'm going to talk about Hartford's failure to share the opinion of its medical reviewers before the claims denial and what happened in that case. Let's take a break. Are you a professional with questions about your individual disability policy? You need the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. This book gives you a comprehensive understanding of your disability policy with tips and to-dos regarding your disability application that will assist you in submitting a winning disability application. This is one you won't want to miss. For the next 24 hours, we are giving away free copies of the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. Order yours today at disabilityclaimsforprofessionals.com. Welcome back. ERISA claims regulations govern the conduct of an ERISA disability carrier or plan, and they require the carrier or the plan to provide the beneficiary with any adverse material it has before the disability carrier issues a claims denial. Now, one of the common tools in a carrier's toolbox, denial toolbox, is to have your medical records and the forms reviewed by their liar for hire physicians. They're called peer review doctor. Now, peer review doctors make excellent living uh, by writing reports for disability carriers in which they reject the opinions of treating physicians. And they do that because they're paid to do so. It gives the carrier a reason to deny the claim. 
Now, the ERISA regulations were developed so that the disability carrier couldn't sandbag a policyholder or plan beneficiary. They can't hide the ball or come up with even new reasons for a claims denial once an appeal is filed. The appeals process is supposed to be full and uh, fair. And if the carrier is hiding the ball, I think that it's it's a violation of the ERISA regulations because it prevents you from rebutting whatever the carrier is relying on. But unfortunately, not all judges will see it that way. Let me tell you about the case of Archer versus Hartford Life. It's an Eastern District of New York case. Archer was the assistant uh, manager at TJ Maxx department store, and she became disabled as a result of spinal stenosis and carpal tunnel syndrome. Her claim was denied. She submitted an appeal, uh, and that appeal had additional medical records, statement from her physician clarifying their responses to the APS forms, and further medical documentation taking her out of work. Now, the claims denial was upheld when Hartford had its liar for hire physician issue new reports rebutting the new medical evidence. And Hartford, in violation of that ERISA regulation, didn't give her that material. She ultimately sued. And you would think that the the judge would have fairly and accurately applied the ERISA regulations. But in this case, the judge upheld the denial on the basis that Hartford had, under the terms of policy, the right to reject the opinions of the treating physician and rely on its liar for hire doctors. He completely ignored the violation of the ERISA regulations that required the production of the subsequent unfavorable peer review reports. In other words, the judge gave lip service to the regulations and failed to rule on that issue implicitly saying that it didn't matter that Archer didn't have the opportunity to rebut the evidence because Hartford had the right to reject Archer's rebuttal. Much. I, I think that this is an incorrect decision and that the carrier's violation of the ERISA regulations should have resulted in at least a remand to the uh, to uh, uh, to arch to to the claimant to give her the ability to file a subsequent appeal. This ruling is sort of like saying, "Look, you don't have to stop at a red light because at some point the light's going to turn green." I, I just don't get the reasoning here, and we want the carriers to read and apply ERISA regulations uh, so that they are held accountable for a, providing you with a full and fair review. So, what are the lessons that we've learned today? I think that one of the most important lessons is that the terms and definitions in your policy matter. And you should get out your disability policy and look at the definition of disability, your own occupation or any occupation, so you understand what it is you have to prove. Secondly, we know that the disability carrier's conduct is governed by ERISA rules and regulations, and that's not always followed by the disability carrier and unfortunately not uh, upheld by the courts. And the last lesson we need to understand is that the review process isn't always fair, notwithstanding the regulations, and it doesn't always allow for a full and fair review. That means that you may have to go into federal court and hopefully you get a judge who understands the ERISA regulations and applies them fairly. I hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you like this podcast, please like this page, leave a review, or share it with your friends and family. Remember, this podcast comes out weekly, so stay tuned for our next episode, and I look forward to seeing you again in. Uh, this next episode of Winning Isn't Easy. Thanks.